Enterprise Management 360. Hello, my name is Bob Tarzi, a freelance IT industry analyst, and I will be moderating this EM360 podcast. This is the first of three podcasts looking at the history and future of endpoint security. In this first podcast, we will look at how we got to know. The second and third podcasts will cover what's next for endpoint security and how to map endpoint security to a contemporary security strategy. You will need convincing, given the lurid press reports and real-world experience, that businesses need to take the problem of cybersecurity seriously. For attackers trying to penetrate an organization's IT systems, their initial entry point is often via a compromised network endpoint. Some of the most vulnerable endpoints, and therefore the most targeted, are end-user devices, be it a laptop, desktop, or other device used to access information on a network. The way endpoints are protected has become more sophisticated over time, but many still rely on older techniques such as antivirus that date from before the days of widespread internet use. It is estimated by the research firm Statistica that more than $7 billion will be spent on endpoint security software in 2019. But how effective are the investments being made? Could much of this money be better spent? To guide us through the complexities of endpoint security, I am pleased to be joined by Ian McShane, a vice president and endpoint security expert from security vendor Endgame. Ian is also a former analyst from the research firm Gartner. Hello, Ian. Before we start, the most basic question, what is an endpoint? What is a network endpoint, Ian? Yeah, thanks, Bob. That's a great place to start. When you look at all of the devices inside an organization, you could probably class them all as endpoints. But for the purposes of endpoint security or endpoint protection or endpoint detection and response, what we're really thinking about are devices that are running Windows, devices that are running Mac OS and devices that are running Linux. So although you can think of endpoints as every device on your network, we really want to scale that down to the devices that are interacted with and are interacted upon inside your organization. So, so just to be clear, I mean, there's all sorts of endpoints that are not user devices on networks. We hear about these Internet of Things type devices and point of sales devices, but they're all endpoints that need other sorts of treatment compared to end user endpoints. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, IoT devices aren't interactive, right? They tend to be standalone. So what we're talking about is devices that are interactive. Okay, so when we talk about these interactive end-user endpoints, what are the main threats to endpoints and how do they typically get compromised? There's a bunch of ways, right? Typically, it's malicious files. It can be malicious activity, even disgruntled employees. A lot of the protections against threats or against compromises tend to be bucketed in this no, antivirus or AV. Yeah, that's the protections. But I was wondering how they actually get compromised in the first place. You mentioned that there can be malware on an endpoint. How does it get there in the first place? I believe quite often that's down to, you talked about malicious users, but a lot of it is down to just user ignorance, isn't it? Clicking on the wrong links, opening the wrong attachments <laughs> to emails, that sort of thing. Is that how the malware gets there in the first place? Typically, yes. I would be 
very hesitant to say it's a user problem, right? I don't think user ignorance is an excuse for security vendors getting things wrong. But typically it's a office file delivered to an end user. It's social engineering. It's, it's tricking users. It's not down to user ignorance. Fair point. So let's not blame the users, but but nevertheless, it, it, it does require on the users taking action quite often for the malware to end up on the endpoint. That's right. Usually there's an element of end user interactivity there. And like I say, that can be through being convinced to do something, to run something, to click on something, to enter credentials. That's not always the case, but those are the primary methods of compromise. Yeah. So this is the real point about these interactive user endpoints is it requires the user being persuaded to take some action that then leaves an opening for the attacker because their malware has now got onto the device. Usually, yeah, I would say like nine times out of 10. Of course, there are exceptions that prove the rule. Things like WannaCry that didn't necessarily need any end user interaction. They spread through vulnerabilities in the operating system. But really, typical infections of an endpoint would be user driven. WannaCry is a good example of a piece of malware that became famous um, I think a couple of years ago, and, and in the UK, it particularly affected the NHS. So that, that got quite a lot of press coverage. So that's a, an interesting example, I think. Sure did. I've been in the industry quite a few years. And, you know, for a long time, we've been told that we need to have antivirus software on our devices, and that's going to make them safe. In fact, I can remember a time before there wasn't widespread use of the internet, and we had antivirus back then because there was worries that people would bring in floppy disks with malware on and that sort of stuff. So, you know, antivirus has got a, a long pedigree. Does that not do the trick? You're showing your age there, Bob, I think. Threat protection, yeah, you're right. It used to be as simple as, you know, deploying antivirus and forgetting about it. The AV software would figure out whether something was good, whether something was bad. And um, it was using signatures basically to do pattern matching to decide whether it was definitely known to be a bad file or whether it was a good file or a, a gray file, if you like. But it was a complete black box and it was very, very difficult for anyone to see why a decision was being made. But there's two problems today, right? Back then it was fine. It was all looking at files. You point out the floppy disks or the, you know, the USB type of infection rate. But it's not just about bad files anymore. To compound that, even when it is about bad files, very few vendors are actually protecting against the most prevalent of threats, right? Office documents. Most vendors will be able to tell you if a executable is malicious or suspicious, but there are very few vendors that can look at a Word document or a PowerPoint presentation and tell you whether or not that's a bad file to run. How can a Word document or a PowerPoint presentation be, be malicious? Is that because it's got something embedded in it, a, a macro or something? Yeah. Yeah. So it's all macros, right? The, the thing with a lot of office implementations is when they run, basically uses the end user's credentials or the end user's privilege level. So that means if the end user could typically do something bad, an office document that opens and runs a macro or runs PowerShell would impersonate that user privilege. So something that has a macro embedded within a document can take almost any kind of action in most organizations. Of course, that's another way um, endpoints can be protected beyond spotting the uh, malware is to and make sure the use of privilege is protected because um, attackers are always seeking to promote their privilege level, aren't they, particularly on user endpoints? One of the quickest wins an organization can make really is to make sure that they're not running local admin. That, that negates a, a bunch of the threat landscape straight off the bat. Unfortunately, that's a lot harder to implement than it sounds. Certainly a lot of users in organizations feel that they need to and maybe genuinely need to have that administrative privilege. Yeah. Okay. It's probably beyond the scope of this uh, particular discussion, but there are ways of, of getting that under control. So let's focus. You, you talked about the use of these signatures that traditional antivirus is made use of. Now, as I understand it, any 
executable file, as you pointed out, can have a signature. And if you find an exact match to that signature, you can say this is known to be bad or this is okay, this is known to be good. I mean, this is your, uh, for instance, word processor executable run, and we recognize that. So we use this idea of blacklisting and whitelisting. But two reasons why I believe signature-based recognition is said to be ineffective is first that, of course, the attackers only can change a file just a little bit and it's no longer got the same signature. And secondly, of course, there's executables that fall between those two extremes of black and white. Can you tell us a bit more about the signature recognition and why it fails? Basically, it's looking for bad things. And there are a lot of things to look through and there are a lot, probably a lot more bad things than good things. So it's economies of scale. If you go back a couple of decades ago, when the amount of malicious files was relatively low, certainly compared to today, blacklisting makes sense. To be perfectly clear, right? signature-based detection is phenomenally accurate because you're looking for specific things and you're looking for specific matches. So you don't run as many risks of false positives, which is another issue. The problem with signatures is not the accuracy. The problem with signatures is the distribution of updates, right? The amount of malware that there is today and the ease of, of which you can change your files, characteristics or metadata means that it's almost impossible to have a signature file that's always up to date. As soon as you push that to an endpoint, it's out of date already. There's new malware that isn't going to be covered by that. And that was really why, you know, a decade ago, basically every vendor started to figure out how they can move away from this heavy reliance on signature-based detection. And this proliferation of types of malware, this is down to innovation by the attackers. I mean, we, we, we might accept that attackers are generally bad people. They're, they're, they're not stupid people, so they're clever. So it's, it's an arms race, isn't it? They're constantly changing their method of attack and making it hard for the defenders to keep up with them. So I think uh, that means there's this many different versions of malware. I've, I've heard terms like polymorphic malware, where you take a single piece of malware and have hundreds of different versions of it. That's the sort of innovation you're talking about from the uh, attackers, is it? Yeah, and it's just so easy to repack executable files to make them look different. You can add a couple of bytes to the end or the start of a file, and you know the file hash changes completely. It makes it look like a completely new file, even though the executable content may be the same as it's been before. Well, I've heard talk of uh, what's called next-generation antivirus, or NGAV. Does this not solve the problem? <laughs> One of my favorite or maybe one of my sorest points is the phrase next-gen AV. It doesn't really mean too much in, in that context, right? NGAV is really a catch-all that means detecting bad files without relying on that signature distribution. And there are a whole bunch of ways you can do that and a whole bunch of ways that vendors are doing that. Things like machine learning or statistical analysis, where we look at the properties of a file and we are able to predict using some pretty strong maths that we can predict whether or not that file is likely to be good or bad with a specific level of confidence. We also look at things like behavior. We look at things like reputation. So have we seen that file anywhere else? Where was the first time we saw it? And on the behavior front, what's the file actually likely to do? If we analyze the code, can we predict what that file is going to do? Is it going to spawn a command line? Is it going to try and open another process that it shouldn't do? The other reason I don't really like the phrase next gen is, you know, where do you go after next gen? You start talking about Next-gen stuff that was around five years ago, is that where we are now? One of my favorite quotes was from a, a former colleague of mine at Gartner who said, you shouldn't focus on next-gen, you should focus on the what works gen. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but nevertheless, all those things you mentioned, um, behavioral analytics, machine learning, 
I've heard the term heuristics and stuff like that. That, 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 that is really more sophisticated than traditional signal-based antivirus, but it's still got its problems. Yeah, I mean, it's still heavily file-based, right? Malicious file detection or virus detection is still very important. It's important to detect the payload when it's dropped. It's important to detect the bad files. But ultimately, it's not just about files anymore. You have to take into account user activity. You have to take into account behavior. And you have to take into account the fact that some things might look suspicious, but are actually totally normal. And some things that look normal might be suspicious. For example, you know, I open probably hundreds of emails every day and probably open equally as many office documents from an email. So if, if I look at my process tree on my device, it would show Outlook opening a Word document. And then if there's an embedded video in there, maybe it's opening a QuickTime player. So you've got all of these behavioral elements that bring together this like larger picture of what's actually happening. But really the important part is figuring out quickly which ones are malicious so you can stop them before they cause any damage or loss. In the second podcast, go on to look at the whole attack chain and the indicators of compromise that are involved in that. So to finish off this podcast, which is looking at how we got to today, if the traditional antivirus and so-called next generation antivirus, I know you don't like the term, but let's use it for the time being, are ineffective, why are the vendors that supply these products, why are they still in business? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't think it's fully ineffective, right? I think the technology that's available today is doing a job. Maybe it's not the job that's suited for today, but the truth is a lot of organizations still don't know what they need to change, or they don't know enough about that change to be able to make a decision, or they frankly don't have the staff or skills or budget to be able to implement something stronger. There's a lot of misguidance. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of frankly, nonsense that gets written by vendors, by news articles that just compounds the confusion. And sometimes organizations get analysis paralysis, right? They start looking into things over and over and over and over. And sometimes they guess, I better stick with what I have. So so, so to be clear, I mean, I mean, if there's a, a listener out there today whose organization is using traditional antivirus or something a bit more sophisticated, they shouldn't think that it's doing nothing. It is doing something. It is offering them a level of protection. But there's a lot more that they could be doing. And we're going to go on and look at that in the second and third podcast. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much to Ian Machine of uh, Endgame for providing this insight into the history of endpoint security. And thank you for listening to this EM360 podcast. The second and third podcast in this series, looking at the future of endpoint security, are also available on the EM360 website. Thank you very much. For more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com.